Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 255 of the show. And uh, today we've got me and Josh in the booth for the intro. Josh, what's going on? Not much, dude. You ever think we'd get to 255 episodes? Uh, you know, I thought so. I believed in us. Did you not believe in us? I just, you know, five years later doing that many people, my dad, I mean, I've told this before, but the first time I told my dad we're doing a podcast about people in Columbus, he said, are there enough people? He said, no, there's the most New Yorker, the most New Yorker thing to say, but yeah. I honestly didn't think we'd be friends for this long. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I wasn't sure we would either, but, uh, might as well introduce (laughs) our guest for today with that one. Uh, and today on the show, we got Paul Powers joining us, CEO of FISNA and Paul is, a pretty, uh, pretty incredible guy. Yeah, he was super cool to talk to. I mean, his entire background up until now has just been like strictly driven by following your passion, being extremely intelligent, and just working really hard at things to achieve stuff that other people couldn't. And uh, I don't think he's done doing that now, even with the concept they've done with the business and, and what they're um, setting out to do and what they're achieving is pretty amazing. So I think everybody will kind of get a kick out of uh, not only Paul, but also the company. Yeah. And he, he like he was homeschooled at first. Then he decided at 16, like, I'm just going to move to Switzerland and study there. And then he decided to study law in Germany, of all things. Uh, and so he speaks German, does law, but that's not at all what he's in. He's into, uh, so their company does some pretty cool stuff with 3D modeling and and you guys will hear more about it here in the episode, but really, really fun episode. So hope you all enjoy this and we'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am your co-host, Mike, and we got the full crew here today. Josh, Tim, what's going on? Not too much, man. Beautiful day in Columbus, Ohio. 72. Actually, not that beautiful. It's cloudy outside, but it's warm. I'll take it. That's all we really want in this state. Allergies are are killing me. But other than that, it's it's been great. Yeah. Josh just came back from Vail and he spent some time falling down the mountain. I did. Colorado is a beautiful state, much better than Ohio, but I am glad to be wow. home. You can't be on the Conquering Columbus podcast <laughs> oh, and be a host and then Shoot. say that Colorado is better than Ohio. I think we have to kick you off now. I think you're done. <laughs> I thought this That's was it. Conquering Colorado. It's going to be Conquering Colorado yet, right, so right, the right. alliteration works. I always yeah, it works. It sticks. But okay, well, we should probably stop talking about Vail and everyone's shaking their heads at me. And hopefully everybody who's listening to this, if you're new to this, this is like the very typical way that this goes. But if you're not new to this, then you know that I tend to ramble just like I am right now. So conquering San Diego, conquering San Diego. And with that, we'll introduce our guest. So today on the show, we've got Paul Powers joining us and he's the CEO and founder of FISNA. 
a software company that helps companies take 3D models and turn them into usable data for software applications. And this helps increase productivity in manufacturing and empowers companies to better utilize emerging technologies such as 3D printing as well as augmented and virtual realities. And we're excited to talk with Paul about his story, the story of FISNA. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's pretty exciting stuff. 3D modeling and data. I mean, that's really blowing up right now, isn't it? I mean, it's been blowing up for a while. It's, we're just in the beginning of it though, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, the challenge I would give you is this. So right now, if you, if someone says 3D to you, you probably think of a couple of niche areas, like you mentioned, 3D printing, augmented reality, and you probably don't have a whole lot of interaction with those things on a day-to-day -day basis. But if you were to think forward, like, Where's, where's the world going to be in five years from now in technology? We probably agree on is that you're not going to be using a smartphone for everything. It won't just be input for output. And what most people imagine is some sort of an immersive world, right? Where technology is intelligently predicting what you need and it's enhancing your life. Well, for that to happen, technology has to play in the same world that you live in. And where technology falls behind right now, where, where we're woefully far behind, is in that third dimension, uh, right, with depth. Technology is great with text. It's written in text. Software is all text. But the world's not. And so what makes me so excited about FISNA is that we're bridging that gap between the physical and the digital. So I think that, yeah, that's those areas are blowing up. But if you think about where it'll be in a year or two, I mean, if you just look at the news of the past week, almost every day for the past seven days, there's been some giant announcement from a leading tech company, Apple, Microsoft, Google, you name it, um, on how big AR is going to be. I mean, just today, there was a big announcement or a big article that came out about how Tim Cook thinks that um, AR is going to be what defines the future of Apple. 3D really is the new frontier. And AR is augmented reality, right? So yep. the idea that like, I mean, the, the example that I think of is, is Google Glass that kind of came and then <laughs> flopped, but yeah. having an ability to kind of go throughout your day, but have visual cues and kind of interacting, like technology interacting with your, your visual reality, right? So layering the digital on top of our visual reality, is that, am I getting that right? Or is there more to augmented reality than that? I mean, it's very literal in the sense that it's augmenting your reality, right? So it, it's adding cues, it's adding helpful hints to your reality. It's, but it can go as far, I mean, it can be practical and simple, like heads up display in, in your car, I would say is sort of a simple example of early augmented reality. But then it also enters entertainment. You know, what if you have a dog allergy and you can't have a dog, but you could have a virtual one that is the same as a dog in every aspect except for the fact that you can't touch it yet, right? Um, it's, at some point, what all this leads to is really we get to be masters of our own destinies. We get to decide what kind of world we want to live in and how we want to change it. You don't have to live in the reality that you're born into. You can manipulate that. And that's really what software has always been about, but it's just getting a lot more real now. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. What would a, uh, an application or an example of AR becoming the future like in a, you know, in an everyday experience versus, you know, ideal, what would, what would be like one simple thing that you could think of? You can right now, if you wanted to go shopping for furniture and if you have a, an apartment or a house or something, you, Ikea has an app that'll let you use AR to show you what that couch would look like in that corner, mm -hmm. right? You can actually see what you can decorate your home without leaving it. 
and to get an idea of exactly what it would look like. You don't have to take out a tape measure, you know. So that's one of hundreds of examples of how that's available right now, right? That's already available. And what's the eyeglass place that's on the tip of my tongue? Um, Warby Parker. So they'll have an application too, where you can jump on their phone, and it's it's cool for a second, but then you kind of like you want to go in person no matter what. But I guess if you definitely can't make it in person. You can check out some glasses in your face and then it'll let you uh, see it through the application, which I think is kind of interesting. So one of the things, and we normally don't start like this, I'll normally start like your background and learning about you and then get to the business, <laughs> but we're going down a rabbit hole. No, that's roll. cool. I love the, part, the product side, so that's fun. And I'm kind of, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it anyways, but another uh, deep wormhole that you can like push us straight out of or we can go down in is the NFT side of things because I've been getting sucked in that lately. As you think about a digital space like this and you think about uh, augmented reality and 3D applications, have you have you guys thought at all, or do you even care? Do you think about the NFT space and blockchain technology relates to what you guys are doing? Is that totally a curveball? No, it's come up probably a dozen times in the past uh, month or so. Something that keeps being brought to our attention. I see value there, and I'm not going to bet against it. But um, traditionally, I'm, I'm not. I've never really been a big blockchain guy. I've always been more um, on the AI side, and um, I think that there is value in NFTs, but. The current state makes me think that they're probably a little bit exaggerated. Uh, you know, I mean, you're seeing people buying gifts for millions of dollars and stuff. I think that that's more hype than anything else. doesn't mean that there won't be a place for NFT. I think in the intellectual property side of things, you know, when you're talking about patents and trademarks and being able to say, yes, I actually own the, the rights to this, I think that's where NFT starts to become really valuable. More as like a token that this is the authentic, approved version of something, not a copy or ripoff. So... Uh, I, I do think there's a future there, but it probably looks different than I think how people are envisioning it right now. Because the, the concept itself doesn't seem that, I mean, like we, we have coupons, we have vouchers, like the idea of trying to make something that nobody else can copy and show ownership isn't necessarily proprietary, right? But the digital application of it is something like I still haven't wrapped my head around and, and I just thought that'd be interesting. So maybe now we can take a step back. Let's talk a little bit about just get to know you as a person. Um, and we have some guests that start milestones like all the way back to childhood because they feel like that kind of reflects how they got into business. As you kind of tell your own personal story, does it start here in Columbus, Ohio? Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. So one of the other C's. Um, I grew up on the West Side, and I do think that it defined me, actually, in a lot of ways. Probably true for everybody. But I've got a weird track record. Like if you kind of like look over my LinkedIn or my background, it's really awkward. It's like, okay, he went from this country to that country and did this and then this, and then he ended up here doing FISNA. And to me, it's all linear, straight line, and it makes sense because it's my background. So, of course, it does. But... What kicked it all off was really that I was homeschooled growing up. Um, it's a long story why, but you know we lived in not that great of a part of town, and the public school system was awful. So I would get beat up and come back with like you know blood on my hands and stuff. I mean, not not from somebody else, from me because I lost <laughs> those fights. And then eventually, my parents just kind of pulled me out and they said, "Look, it's too dangerous, and we can't afford to send you to a private school." So. The only other option was to homeschool me. And my mom had to work, and my dad was, he's not, he wasn't killed or anything, but it was an accident, and then he had to have a lot of surgeries done um, on his back. And um, I ended up mostly teaching myself for most of my uh, childhood, which meant me, made me very, very independent and uh, made it possible for me to take different approaches to things. And I think it also set my mindset because I think most people kind of, I think it's true that a lot of us, we view our own success and our own status through our peers, right? And that's why I say, you don't, don't hang out with, be careful who you hang out with because you're going to be the sum of, you're the average of the five people you're closest to, right? And so I didn't really have that. I didn't really have a lot of peers. I had friends, but I didn't really have peers because we weren't sitting next to each other in class. And so 
who did I have to measure myself against? Well, the only people I was reading a lot about were people who were historical figures and in history, like, hey, look, look what Einstein did, look what Newton did, look at, you know, insert here. They had these huge impacts. And so that kind of helped me to think like, hey, I want to compare myself to those people who did something big in history. And that kind of set, you know, so from a very, very young age, probably around six or seven, I was very um, career driven or big picture. We had a guest a while back who was also homeschooled and not, I know you're, you'll be humble about it, but like the smartest people I think I've ever talked to in my life are homeschooled. And I think what's interesting about it, at least they they appear the most knowledgeable because of the fact that I think you got to be so disciplined, but also the jump to realize that like, if you want to learn something, achieve something, you don't necessarily have to have somebody teach you. Like in school, I think what's always been tough for me to, to translate from that back to the real world is that in school, they give you structure. It's like to do this, to this, to this. If I just work really hard, I really don't have to be super smart. I just got to do what somebody tells me. But in the real world, all of a sudden you got to be scrappy and you got to like find a way to get things done on your own. And making being homeschooled, I think almost makes people make that jump at a really young age, right? Because you got to figure out, I got a book and I got to figure out how to get it done. And, and then I got to learn. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So you get done being homeschooled though, and then do you decide to go off to college at that point or, or what do you decide to go for further education? Yeah, so I went to I went to Harvard for a for a hot minute. I was there for a semester, and exactly what you're talking about was a big turnoff for me. The structure. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a structure, and you have to do everything in a very specific way. I really hated that. Uh, it was a big turn. I, mean, I, I felt like I, even though I was, you know, went from being a kid who was at home all the time to being semi adult. I was 16 at the time, uh, but uh, you know, being alone, I felt more like I was being <laughs> treated like a child than I did when I was at home because you know my parents were actually pretty open-minded. I didn't have a curfew or anything. No one ever told me, go do your homework. It was just, hey, there's a test at the end of the year, and if you fail it, the government will take you out, oh, away and put you in a public school again. You get the crap beaten out of you. Yeah. Um, so there was yeah, a motivation so that was there. a motivator. Yeah. Uh, and I always did really well. I was always in the 99 percentile because, I mean, it, it was easy to beat that test. All you had to do was math and reading comprehension. So as long as you can remember what you read, and you can do math, you're going to do fine. And which meant that I really didn't read most of the things that people read. Like, it's kind of embarrassing. Like people talk about these books that every American's read. And math. I have no idea what you guys are talking about at all. No idea. Um, I went to a private school, so it's very similar. Mm-hmm. We had like, you know, really, we, that's a whole other story. But yeah, I went through the same thing where people talk about the stuff they would read in school. And it was like right. foreign foreign to me. To Kill a Mockingbird, Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we weren't allowed to read it for whatever weird reason, men? you know. Everybody reads those. Ones, like we right? couldn't read uh, the what's the one where they go through the um, the Tolson book where they go through the thing Narnia. Narnia, yeah, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. It's like a Christian undertones, and we yeah. weren't allowed to read it because like witchcraft or whatever. That's it's, yeah, Lewis. it's just Lewis. You're right. You're right. Oh wow, they were homies. You get it. But anyways, <laughs> so did you did you graduate from homeschooled high school or, or did you or did you? I'm sorry, that was a terrible question. Did you do high school homeschool? <laughs> yeah, my mommy as said well? that I passed. Yeah, uh, I yeah. was like, yeah, I shouldn't answer it like that. <laughs> Or did you did you ever go to, or was it just like homeschool all the way through to college? No, I, I got to go to college kind of young. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but I really didn't like the the structure here um, as much. And so, um, but I really did like being away from home, you know, being, I mean, really getting to stretch my wings, if you will. Yeah. So I did an exchange year over in Switzerland and uh, went there to, I thought Switzerland would be the same as Germany. I want to learn German because I thought that'd be, I thought that was a cool language. And it, the only difference is they'll have mountains. And then I learned that Swiss German is like, Nothing like regular German. It's it's really <laughs> guttural, m- much more guttural than regular German. And uh, had to kind of learn That's it twice. something too. Yeah, it is. So I really liked it over there, and uh, ended up going to 
college over in, in Germany after that because Switzerland was expensive as hell. What did you think of the food in Switzerland? It was very cheesy. Yeah, very I, cheesy. I was really, really let down. Like the really? whole time. Yeah, the whole time. I was beautiful. I love the. I love the country. But oh, I, 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 I said that in a positive way. I love cheese. I just I couldn't find good food there. I was wow. maybe, maybe it was me. I mean, I love cheese too. My body does not agree. If with anybody cheese. from Switzerland is tuning into this, Tim's opinions do not reflect <laughs> hey. our conquering Columbus or Americans' opinion. It on was your beautiful. Food. It was Please beautiful. Please don't leave nasty comments. <laughs> um, I love Switzerland. Well, what's funny about that is like you know I I know tons of people from Ohio and. <laughs> That's Sweet crazy. Bread, That's amazing. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Soft flex over here. Hold on. I live in the state for 12 I'm going, years. I'm going how many, somewhere. How many people do you know from San Diego? Can you guys let me finish my thought here or what? Uh, but most Ohioans, right? Hey, they're like, oh, I want to get away from home. And they go to like, you know, Michigan or Chicago or New York or California. But you decided, hey, that's not quite far enough away. I'm just going to go all the way across the world to Switzerland. I mean, that has to be. And you were 16 at the time? Mm-hmm. So you're living by yourself in a foreign country where you don't quite understand the language because it's not the normal German you're hearing. I mean, how, what? No, I didn't know German. I moved over there to learn it. Okay. So I didn't so, know. <laughs> it's what? an efficient way to learn a language though. Uh, yeah. Very I mean, you you got to learn quick, but that had to be a little bit stressful, right? I didn't find it stressful. I found it exciting. Um, you know, it's the nice thing about being a 16 year old male is that you're just too dumb to know what's <laughs> to be stressing you out. Right. So uh, I found it to be super exciting and I loved every minute of it some of the best times of my life were over there. You know, I really enjoyed that year. And then Switzerland is just ungodly expensive. Mm -hmm. So Germany became a better option. And uh, I was going to go back. I got into MIT. I was going to go and do physics. Um, But, you know, I kind of, another thing that kind of took me off the path that I was already on was I kind of realized over time, you know, it used to be, again, going back to like the whole Galileo thing or whatever, it used to be, I feel like you could just have a powerful theory and, you know, figure something out and you change the world. But it feels, I felt more and more over time like people who had companies and were applying technology differently, they were really the ones who were driving innovation more so than the scientists at the end of the day and the individual contributors. So I thought, you know, I was looking at people like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, doing these unbelievable things, you know, by having a startup. And, I, and the way I paid for my way, my way over into Switzerland and I bought my plane ticket with money that I made by having a company. It was a really simple company. It was just a tutoring service thing. But... I really liked running a company. So I thought, you know, that's how I'm going. I'm going to take that approach. So I switched from physics into, and I thought at that point it doesn't really matter what I do because I'm just going to be a startup CEO. Who cares what degree I got? And a lot of people said, you know, be really, like they were kept talking about, if you're going to go to Germany, just do anything except for law. They're like, law is the hardest. Like no one ever, like the, it's a nightmare. Do any field except for law. Law is terrible in Germany. And I learned more and more about it. And I realized that no American, um, at least I was told this by the universities, so like no American had gone over, learned the language and then passed their German bar exam. So it's exactly what I decided to do. Then I found out a year or so into it why no one ever bothered doing it because it was god awful. But ended up working out seven years of law school, though, 35 hours of bar exams, 95% failout rate. It's awful. Jeez. Yeah, it's not fun. Did you take the bar in yeah, Germany? I passed you passed? Yeah. Wow. So you're the first American to ever pass the bar in Germany? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first American citizen. I'm sure right. there's someone who has dual citizenship dual or something. Citizenship. Okay. So I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, what I was told by the university, you know, that that was the first. And I, it was it was cool about it was that whether or not I'm the first, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. It was really rare, mm-hmm. right? And so I got to I got to go work at a law firm like in my first semester of law school. I knew nothing about law at all. And uh, they still hired me because they're like, yeah, but you, you know a lot about English. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you could help us with that. And uh, <laughs> I remember my first class in German uh, in, in law school over there. It was called, um, it was administrative uh, law, which in German is Verwaltungsrecht. Not that anyone asked. but um, I was, I, I was going to ask. Yeah, so okay, don't worry. There, there you go. Um, but I asked the guy next to me, I was like, hey, what does is, what is, uh, administration mean? <laughs> it's over to me. He's, he's like, 
means you're screwed. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That's true. So that was hard. It was really hard, but I'm glad I did it. So you wrap that up and then you decide to come back to the States or where do you go after that? Well, I had the idea for FISNA because of law school. So I was a very nerdy guy, as I, as I kind of pointed out before, I'm really into the sciences and technology. And German law is about as exciting as it sounds, which is saying something. It's really boring. I mean, if, if you think you've ever been bored before, imagine sitting in a three-hour lecture about the construction zone laws of a city, of a state, of a country you're not a citizen of. Like, that is boredom. And so, I, I mean, the only area of law that I could stand was um, was obviously commercial law and uh, especially intellectual property. And what I found really quickly was we couldn't find patent infringement. Even uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't figure out the source of patent infringement. Someone would steal your idea, like they would steal your design for a phone or whatever. And we had no idea where they got the file. Even though some people would be like, oh, I think they got it on Thingiverse. So they found it on this one website. We're like, okay, well, where is it? We can't find it. But if it was a picture or a text or something, we could use, find it with an algorithm. And I thought that was stupid. So I tried finding something that would do a geometric search and I found tools that said they did. And so I moved back to the US kind of actually thinking I was going to work on improving an existing tool or reapplying an existing tool for a different market. And then I found out that those tools kind of sucked. And the, um, the best result I could get with any of the dozen plus tools we tried was 65% of the time we were able to find two models as long as they're identical, not, um, not in any way oriented differently, same program, same source, uh, and 100% the same. And then, only, and then it was 65% of the time. And it took like an hour. And like, this is awful. We're not going to be, <laughs> this, this technology is terrible. And so we decided to take our own approach. We found our own, took a completely different approach to analyzing data. And millions of dollars and years later, we figured, found a way to show how all 3D data is related. So it's a relational, a relationship thing. We were able to actually show people that it's not just that things are related. I can show you, or these things are similar. We were able to, the first public demo we did we found a flea in a skyscraper. And we were able to say, hey, these two skyscrapers are not the same. One has a flea in it on the 34th floor behind this one window right here to scale, and this one doesn't, um, which was a live demo, by the way. And we didn't actually know if what the difference was. We had somebody else put it in there. And uh, I didn't know it was a live demo until afterwards, which is good because I would have been a lot more nervous than I was. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years, providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. The idea that you were able to make it through law school with how boring you described it is interesting to me. But outside of that one, I'm also curious, like, how do you come back here, uh, not necessarily have studied the algorithms to be able to to make this computational software actually viable. 
do you just bring together the right team to do it or did you just learn it yourself? So I think I mean, homeschooling means that, uh, again, like you pointed out before, you, you kind of figure out how to hustle and put things together. I did have a little bit of an advantage, which is the semester I was at Harvard, I was studying astrophysics. And that actually gave me the inspiration for how to think about the problem, not the full equation. That took a lot longer, but um, it, gave, it gave me the idea for how to do it. So the algorithms actually, the math behind them, I actually did the math behind the, the algorithms myself. I did not code a single line of code in FISNA at all. But, um, but that's how I got the... You know, how we, we went from law school to having this company it was just some basic math stuff and then digging deeper and deeper and deeper until eventually we got something that worked. The hard part was then was coding it. Even after we had the math figured out, it took us two years. To I feel code. like your basic math stuff and, and my basic math stuff are probably not mm-hmm. the same basic math stuff. No, I'm not saying this is basic math. This is pretty <laughs> this is pretty complicated stuff. But <laughs> yeah. like it started off with some basic <laughs> ideas from basic math and then it became a lot more complicated. Right. Very quickly. It was like a rabbit hole. You can tell I'm kind of going down rabbit holes a lot. Is there, well, so did you, you mentioned that you focus on AI. Was there machine learning or AI involved in, in the development of your software? Not in phase one. What, what's interesting about machine learning and, and about what we've discovered with the software. So I said that the idea came from patent infringement um, and identifying, you know, basically finding stolen models. One of the more interesting things that I've gone through in my life was that after um, I went into debt, I took out a ton of personal debt. And I had no debt in Germany because it was all free. You know, the college was all free. So I came back here. I left a job that was paying a lot of money and came back here, had no job, took out ever, all the debt I possibly could. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to start this company. And then I, but I never bothered to verify <laughs> that people actually cared about this problem. I was just so sure that they did. And I went up to um, an event called IMTS in Chicago, and I went around like for days just telling people about this, trying to sell the you know a seat of this li- of this technology, and found that absolutely nobody cared at all. They were like, I don't care about patent infringement stuff. You, that sounds whatever. But they were really interested in how. They're like, how are you able to do that? And so what we found was that actually we had solved a much bigger problem because within a month of that, we came back, there were like 20 different applications that we were approached about. And these are all like Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of where we got our real start. Actually, was realizing that we had crossed a much bigger chasm than the little one I was thinking about originally. And thank God we did, because I was going I would be broke otherwise. I was pretty sure I was broke on the way back from Chicago. Um, and then a month after that, we were able to raise a lot of money and get this actually going. And and that problem that, that came about was getting modeling data into an actual usable form of data, right? It's like so, taking... So here's the problem. So software is flat and and, and so is the data. Now you, you, you'll, you'll say, okay, well, yeah, Paul, but there are all these different programs that allow you to dr- create things in 3D. Well, how often are you actually looking at something in 3D? I'm pretty much always looking at a two-dimensional orientation of something. And the the software programs are all built differently and, and they're built by this um, almost like an oligopoly of companies. You've got Siemens, you have Dassault, and then you have a whole handful of these companies that create these modeling tools. And they're all different. They don't communicate well at all. And so they're almost like written in just different siloed languages. There's dozens of these languages. And so whenever you try to convert something from one to the other, you lose the, you lose data, it scrambles it. You can get it to look like something, but it's not uh, identical. And essentially, the, the big problem was even within those companies, they, um, the way that they analyze one model to another is something called BREP data, which is in other words, is like, what did the designer do? So if you design something from, let's say you drew a line, you drew it from the top down, that would be different in their minds than if you do the same line from down up. And so the way that they think about data is not geometric, it's mm-hmm. process oriented. And so when you're comparing data, it doesn't work. And so what, we're, what we did was we said, okay, we're gonna take a mathematic approach that'll sh- let us understand all 3D models, all 3D data, it doesn't matter, you can be a 3D scan of something you can take with your phone, it doesn't have to be a 
CAD model, for instance. It can be an AR model. doesn't matter. And we break that down mathematically into these feature sets and sets of intrinsic properties, essentially, which allows us to say, hey, this, if you were to take a, like a glass vase and shatter it on the ground, and we actually did this as an example, FISNA can show you how those pieces can be built into a vase, right? And where each piece goes in that vase. So it doesn't have to be like a parent-child relationship. It's just done mathematically. And before we did that, there was no way to relate data like that. So a real-world problem would be, let's say you're an engineer of something, you're a mechanical engineer, you're only about one-fifth as productive as a software engineer because you can't copy-paste, you can't search for things, and you can't search for a screw because you designed 400,000 screws in your company. So you can't find things, mm-hmm. and that's a problem. And you can't, and you don't know necessarily where you can order replacement parts because they're all called something different. They're all different part numbers. Something that our brains do very effectively is if I were to take like, a cap off of that bottle and then in a totally different context hand you that bottle cap, you would say, oh, this is a bottle cap, and I remember that's for that one glass at the office or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you would be able to do that, but software is terrible at that. Right. There's no idea those two things are related. And so we made that possible, essentially. So where do you see this being applied in, in different industries? Like, where, where is the biggest verticals, and how has your guys' go-to-market strategy evolved? So we really see three areas of adoption, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't say that these are, I think of them all as one vertical, one, one industry, but they're traditionally different. So the one is making engineers more productive. So like there's no Google or GitHub for physical engineers. So we make them several times more productive by just giving them like autofill, copy, paste, search, that kind of capabilities with geometry versus having to use text. The second vertical is um, supply chain and um, procurement. So let's say you design an engine and you want to uh, you want to buy all the parts that you need to build this engine. Well, in a lot of companies, we find that they have dozens and dozens and dozens of files that are for the same part from different parts of their company, and they're all the same thing. So you're, um, and if one of those companies can't deliver to you, now you have, you have a delay and you can't uh, build the part. And I'll, even if they can deliver to you, we found that on average about 30% of parts have duplicates, and the parts that do have duplicates is about 34 duplicates per part, which means that for 30% of the parts that you're, you're ordering, you're paying not like 5% more, you're paying several times what you need to be spending because you're not consolidating your orders. So overall, what does that mean? It means that on average, our customers save 40% of procurement when they switch over to us. That's actually, it's a huge number because if you think about that, if you were, you had your own brand of cars, you're an OEM car manufacturer, you're going to spend billions, many billions of dollars a year in procurement. If 40% of that is waste, that's, you know, the difference between being super successful and failing. And so that's another really big use case. And the third one is identifying what things are. So a lot of our customers pay us for API access so they can have the underlying technology for a totally different use case. So they'll do things like we have the ability to do 2D to 3D. So what does that mean? It means if you take a picture of something, traditional image recognition will say, hey, that's a bottle. Hey, that's a gear. Hey, that's a whatever. It'll tell you the classification of it. But with 3D and the way that we analyze 3D, we can get much more precise. So we can tell you that's not just any gear. That is this exact gear, which by the way, I don't care what the part number of this is or what it's called. There's all of these other things with the exact same things, and they can be used interchangeably. And then we can say, and by the way, this is where they fit geometrically. So this is, you're driving home, something falls off your car. You take a picture of it. We would be able to tell you, this is what that is, and this is where it would go in your car, exactly in 3D. And by the way, your lawnmower has the exact same part. It's called something totally different, but it's the exact same thing. And you can just take that part off your lawnmower, put it on your car, and you'll be good to go. That's an actual real use case of this. So why do people want to find things? What are the use cases for it? They're pretty broad. You know, I mean, most of our customers are Fortune 500s or government agencies, but we have also we also have customers that are you know small to medium sized businesses and increasingly individuals. One thing, uh, one of the, the fastest part growing parts of our company, it's not actually traditional FISNA. It's Thangs.com, T H A N G S. 
And um, that's the fastest growing 3D community in history right now. And if you go to things.com, you can play around with it and see what geometric search lets you do. It's kind of changes everything. And so a lot of them are hobbyists and students. Did you ever watch uh, Silicon Valley, the HBO show? Yeah, but my girlfriend won't let me watch too much of it because it riles me up and makes me gets me back into work mode. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Did you see the one where he makes a, a thing that, an app that determines what's a hot dog or what it's supposed to say what food is, but he only trains it and it says everything's a hot dog? Oh, I think I did see that, yeah. Uh, when, you, when you were saying, you know, you can scan it and it would tell you what it is. That's all I could think of. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza or anything. I don't think anything. so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hybeck. I mean, I go there all the yeah. time. Their hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's man, what I was going to say. Is, as soon oh. as we had him on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but Hybeck's a lot more than just a restaurant. They distill whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, the story behind the organization is great too. So yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. Mm -hmm. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events right now. They're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far. That's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant, somewhere to watch the game. If you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I All promise right. you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. So what does the company look like today? Like what, what is the structure? And then what do the goals look like for the future? So right now the company is about 40 people. We just f finished our series B from Sequoia, uh, led by Sequoia. Um, which actually makes us the first Ohio company to get um, investment from them. And we're going to probably grow to 50 to 60 people by the end of the year, I would say at least. We're going to increase revenue 5x to 10x this year, I would say. Um, easily, uh, Thangs is going to grow probably 10x by the end of the year. Um, it grew 18x since our Series B already. So it's been really, really exponential in, in its growth pattern. It's been fantastic. It might even be faster than I'm predicting. I'm being kind of conservative. By the end of the year, what we'll start to see is AR is going to play more and more of a role into this. If you, um, I see that you're over on, on things right now. If you click on a model, depending on which one you click on, you might get two download options. We scroll down just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. You, I think you've got what it is. So you say download and then download an AR. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So if you have, right I'm looking now, at a Triceratops, by the way. Yeah. There's just a lot. So, of, just so everyone knows what I'm looking at. <laughs> there's a lot of very practical things in there like that. And uh, so if you uh, had an Android phone, mm -hmm. Very soon here, you'll be able to click on that, even on a mobile browser, and actually see it on Android without downloading any app. You don't have to have an app. It'll just show you that Triceratops on the table with your phone without downloading anything else. And iOS is coming pretty soon. Now, there's about 1.5 million models in the site. There'll be over 10 million by the end of the year. Even with 1.5 million models, by the time that we have this fully supported, which is coming in a matter of weeks, we will be the world's largest AR repository, like the largest AR library in the world by more than threefold. And what's cool is all those models, none of them are AR models. They're all for 3D printing, for you know, design, their people scanned their cat, whatever. But uh, we're making that work in AR. And then later it'd be vice versa. And so that'd be a big deal. Yeah. And I can imagine all the applications of this that could use this, you know, as people develop more and more AR software, 
right? They're going to need models for a lot of things they're developing. I mean, especially uh, things.com for, for video games, Yeah, right? The video game market just seems like it would be blown up as, as these more, more and more virtual reality games come online. They're going to need models for all of these things. And having a database like this seems like it would be really, really valuable. Absolutely. And Thanks is really meant to be like a combination of the Google and GitHub. So the Google part's kind of clear. Um, there's a bit of a community aspect to it. I mean, what you're looking at, those are all parts that people uploaded. Mm-hmm. But we also crawl the web, so we index data that's publicly available. So if you were to search for a part and some supplier sells it and they have a 3D model, then we'll find that for you. And there's a GitHub side to it, which is that collaboration aspect. So I already kind of mentioned how finding the data is important and really hard to do in 3D. But collaboration is also a pain in the neck because... You know, have you ever, I mean, can you imagine how difficult it would be to, uh, have you guys ever put Ikea furniture together? Have you you tried doing it with somebody else? Like imagine if that person was blindfolded and you were blindfolded and you spoke different languages, right? Like that's kind of what it's like trying to do, design something in 3D at the same time as somebody else. So traditionally you have to like save it as a, as a part number. Somebody else saves it as a different part number. You have to freeze it. You have to like basically have like a library checkout system. What this is doing, uh, actually the CTO of GitHub's on our board of directors, and so um, we work very closely with him. Um, this actually automate that whole process. So as you're working on, you know, you can have, you're using your favorite CADS tool, you're using, I don't know, something totally different, mm-hmm. and you're able to iterate together and create things much, much, much faster than you could before. And that'll come out in the next two months. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can already see, like I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about applications and the way we use our software. So we're a facilities management software company and we store part information and things like that, but having a link to the things, things part, uh, sorry, things like linked to the part on our website. I mean, I can imagine people just clicking that and going, okay, here's the part, pulling a search, finding all the parts available, but completely different. Now I'm kind of getting sidetracked now. So that's legitimately one of the use cases, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. So as you guys continue to scale, what do you see being the biggest obstacles for your growth? The biggest obstacle is going to be the status quo. I mean, a lot of people are really slow to make changes. The hardest thing about our company is that when I founded the company, I thought that we were creating a solution to a problem. Right? I mean, there's really three kinds of companies. You have a solution to a problem that doesn't exist, and that sucks. You're not going to do very well. You have a problem. You have a solution to a problem, and that's most companies. And and we kind of found out that we kind of morphed from being a solution to a problem to being a solution for a lot more problems than we thought. And explaining that to people is hard. And a good example of how to explain it, I found, is to use the example of Google, right? So if you've never heard of Google before, I remember when I was first, I'm old enough to remember being introduced to Google and actually being slightly confused by it because of how I was introduced to it. Someone said, um, you know, this is, okay, I want to find the nearest uh, cheeseburger restaurant. Okay, cool. So it's cheeseburger finder. No, I can also use it to find, you know, the nearest hardware store or something. So it's a cheeseburger and hardware store finder. But no, I can also look up like, you know, um, who the, uh, what the capital of this country is and who's its president and when they were born. Like, so it's a history cheeseburger hardware store finder tool. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, your, your mind is kind of, is very, <laughs> you're very narrow with it. You think, okay, so it only does these things. But really the answer is no, it's not one of those search engines, it's just a search engine. And that's kind of how we think about Fiznot. The only difference between us and Google is that, and a lot of people ask like, why do you have two products under the same company? You have Thangs, which is public, and you're crawling the web, and you're making this, and it's totally free. And then you have Fizz Enterprise, which is definitely not free, and it's specific to small, medium, large corporations, and um, and their supply chains and stuff. Like why, and then you have APIs that allow people to kind of customize what they're doing with your software. Why do you do all that? It's too much for a software, for a company to take on. And the, the reason, and the, the answer I give them is, imagine if Google, wasn't just the best search engine. What if Google was the only company that understood text? 
Well, you would use it to find things like you do now um, publicly with Google, but you would also need it for your computer because it's the only thing that understands text and you would absolutely need it to find documents. And even within a document to do control F and find something or to do copy paste or any of those things that you're used to doing. If Google was the only company that could do that, you would have an enterprise version and you'd have a public version and they would be connected. And that's kind of how Fizna evolved. So have you guys looked at partnerships with operating systems to try to try to be that plug-in? No. <laughs> you think, is, is that a stupid question? Will no, you, will you guys it's not a stupid all? question. We just have, I'm just being honest, we haven't done it. It's something we can keep in mind. And I think it's a good idea. I just haven't had it. Nice. Well, I'll, take, I'll take royalties. Yeah, yeah. So as you continue to look long-term, what are the goals for FISNA? Do you have an end game in mind or is it all about, you know, you talked earlier about having impacts like Newton and Mark Zuckerberg. Is it all about the impact you're having or do you have a long-term goal in terms of, you know, where you take the company? Both. I think that what FISNA is doing is cool because, and I can say that because I'm running the company, but I think it's objectively interesting what we're doing because there's only been two other moments like this in history. And it wasn't the internet and it wasn't smartphones. It was the telegraph and then binary code. Telegraph was unary code. It was um, unary code. It was one-dimensional. So dot, 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 dot. And that changed the world in a huge way because all of a sudden you can get messages across the globe instantly versus how long it took to, uh, your horse to get there, right? That's a big deal. And then you had binary code. And that's really the last big evolution. So from dot, 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 dot over Morse code to what we have today and everything that we, all the applications we have, that's just one extra dimension. There's only one more left. Okay, now the physics system maybe wants to clarify. There are actually probably more, <laughs> more than three dimensions. I mean, the time's a dimension, but you know, time is not really relevant here. Uh, we already have time covered. So there's only one dimension that's really missing, and that is 3D, going from 2D to 3D. And the difference between nothing and 1D was earth-shattering. The difference between 1D and 2D was more than earth-shattering. I mean, it's, it's exponentially higher. The difference between 2D to 3D, I'm not going to pretend like I know what it is because I can't imagine what the world looks like in 20 years or even five. But it'll be every bit as revolutionary. And what's different about this is that we actually own the technology that's bridging that gap. And that's long happened one of the other two times. Binary code existed since the medieval ages. It just um, wasn't used for computer code. So no one actually owned that. Uh, Samuel Morse owned Morse code. And so he almost had, like, he actually had a monopoly on, um, I shouldn't say monopoly, but he had, like, ownership over to the, the telegraph communication. Unfortunately for him, he sold it really, really early um, and made a very small sum of money compared to what he could have if he kept it for a little bit longer. But uh, had he held on to it, he would have been, like, you know, been in charge of communications for a while. What we're doing with FISNA is helping mankind move from 2D to 3D. And we'll have applications in a couple of years, I think, that are just really hard to fathom right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what excites me about it. So where do I want to take the company? I don't want to sell it. I want to take it to IPO because I think it's going to, I think time works in our favor. And every year that goes by, we'll see more and more applications for this. And it'll be, I'm really excited to see it happen. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, you know, the vision, you can, you can feel your vision and, and your passion for the topic throughout the entire conversation, Paul. So I, I wouldn't bet against you, but uh, you know, as we kind of continue, I think that's a good place to kind of head towards our last question of the show. And it's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for a show about entrepreneurs, business leaders, people that are kind of leading in their fields, what do you think of when you hear it and how does it apply to your life and career? I think you have to be ready to live uncomfortably and to be uncomfortable. But I would say that, and no offense, but I disagree with the statement. Don't live uncomfortably because if you're uncomfortable, you hate what you're doing. Law school was uncomfortable. I was living very uncomfortably. 
And I wouldn't have been a good lawyer because of that. I'm not uncomfortable when I'm working on the company. I'm uncomfortable when I'm not. And because of that, I think that living uncomfortably is not necessarily the right thing to do. It might be an indicator that you need to switch what you're doing. You used to be ready to live uncomfortably, though. If I could amend that, I would say better advice might be live fully and then die empty, right? You know, live as aggressively as you can. And sometimes it'll be comfortable, sometimes it won't be. But you won't care. You won't really be uncomfortable in a macro sense if you're pursuing a, an end goal, a big vision. Because the only thing, the, the only way that you really feel uncomfortable is when you're not doing it. We'll take it. We'll, we'll amend ours. We'll take it. I think that we'll was that we're, was that we're, was. We're changing it to live fully officially. That, <laughs> right live fully. Died, I liked it. It was it was a uh, it was justification behind it too. I feel. I feel yeah, like I can feel it. Yeah. You're allowed to disagree. Yeah, or, that's, that's whatever. We just want to release your Yeah, people can do whatever they want on Conquering Columbus. They just get cut out. That's fair. No, totally kidding, Paul. It's been great talking to you, and we really appreciate you taking the time to tell your story and talk about Fizna here on the show. Thanks for having me. Can I buy some stock like before you do this IPO that you're talking about? No. <laughs> little insider trading while we're at it. It's a little complicated. Yeah. I don't think that's how it works. But <laughs> gotta right. ask. Yeah. Gotta ask. Can't you gotta make No, the story got me excited. It sounds like something I don't understand, but is applicable, which you understand it. You, you, you No, use I'm saying the ins and outs of it. I understand the concept and it makes sense. You know, right. I but I would never know how to do it. And that's like the kind of things that I want to invest in when I'm like, oh yeah, I see the application. I don't know how the hell you do it, but <laughs> it uh, sounds like it. Math is magical and hard. Yeah. And with that, we'll let everybody go here. Uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in so much. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to hear more just like it, then hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. You can get episodes like this every week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.